The Data Possible podcast is brought to you by Discovery Data. For more information about Discovery Data, please visit discoverydata.com. Welcome to the Data Possible podcast, brought to you by Discovery Data. The Data Possible podcast examines how data fuels your sales, marketing, and recruiting teams to achieve success. Our goal is to provide you with tools, techniques, and best practices to help you close more deals, find new opportunities, and recruit better people and partners. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Data Possible podcast, presented by Discovery Data. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. Today, our guest is Mark Bruno, who's a managing director at Echelon Partners. Echelon is one of the leading investment banks to the wealth management industry. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much for having me on, Doug. I appreciate it, and Happy New Year to you. You too. I'm looking forward to this. We're going to talk a lot about the industry M&A activity this past year and what you expect to happen in 2021, but Echelon just released their 2020 RIA M&A deal report. Can we start with some of the highlights from the report? Absolutely. Um, and we actually came out with the sneak peek right before the holidays because it was such a remarkable year on so many levels for the RIA industry and also for M&A. Um, I just say top line, what we saw in the fourth quarter was a record number of deals that took place um, for a single quarter. Um, and we actually saw that in the third quarter too, after the Q2 bottleneck was relieved a little bit. Um, people got back to normal deal-making activities and normal deal-making processes. And we, we actually tracked 55 deals in the third quarter, which was up until just a couple of weeks ago, last week, actually, um, a record for a, a single quarter. In the fourth quarter, right now, we're still finalizing our, our, our data, but we're looking at about 69 or 70 deals. So it's about a 25% increase over the third quarter um, and about two-thirds of all the M&A activity that took place last year in the RIA industry. Can, happened can in the second I, half of the year. Can, right? can I interrupt you for a second there? Please. Did that surprise you? I mean, yeah. people can't visit each other. We have to do everything over Zoom. Is that just crazy numbers? It's a great question, right? And it, it did and it didn't surprise us. Um, and what I mean by that was we knew you know, with any deal, normal life cycle is you know, the low end six months, right? Um, realistically, it's a full year from beginning to end, right? Um, so when things stalled a little bit in the second quarter, it wasn't like deals completely fell apart. Um, and you know they really just sort of got back on track in May and June. I think also, when deals come together, they don't just come together overnight, right? So we did have some visibility, right? And we knew that the second half of the year was going to be active with or without you know, the, the impact of COVID on the economy. But I think the rate that we saw, um, especially in the fourth quarter, was definitely accelerated. I think there are a lot of factors. We'll get into some of the specifics, I'm sure, during this conversation. But there are definitely some other motivators, you know, you know with you know, Biden sort of moving into the office and potentially you know, revisiting you know, tax plans, right? Um, there were some motivations for people who were selling this year to actually sell before you know, 2020 ended, the calendar year ended, right? Um, so they avoided a potential change in the tax code that might potentially be you know, disad disadvantageous to them you know, if you know, they sold in 2021. Um, mm -hmm. So very unusual, lots of different factors you know, coming from all over the place that motivated it. But it didn't surprise us because we knew there was a lot, but it did surprise us because it was more than we anticipated. Any other highlights you want to tantalize people with before we move on? Sure. I think you know, the, the most notable thing is it wasn't just fourth quarter you know, that was a record you know, quarter. It was the full year 
2020 that actually ended up being another record year for M&A in the wealth management um, industry. And you know, that was pretty remarkable, right? All things being considered, you know, given where we were back in April and May. Um, so in the end, you know, this is the eighth consecutive year with our deal report that we have tracked you know, in terms of the number of deals, uh, a new all-time high, we've hit a new record. And we've also, this is really interesting too, the size of the firms that were acquired, um, on average, there were roughly about 2 billion in assets under management. And that was also a record high too. So more activity, larger firms, you know, more sophistication. Um, there, those were the top line key findings for our you know, deal report, the sneak peek that we put out, and then the full report that we'll be releasing momentarily. Yeah. What are some of the key trends you're seeing in M&A right now in the past year and, and moving forward? Sure. And there, there are three that I'll touch on quickly. And if there are any that you want to get into more detail on, just let me know. But I would say in general, on the buyer side, we're seeing so much more sophistication. Um, and so many of the deals that were getting done in 2020 and will get done in 2021 will be you know, basically involving professional buyers, so to speak. And these are firms that you know, a huge part of their business model is based on doing acquisition. Um, in fact, about two thirds of the deals in 2020 that took place were firms that had done multiple acquisitions last year. Um, so they're getting more sophisticated. They have dedicated deal teams. They have the backing of you know, private equity or other long-term investors. There's a ton of capital there and they know how to get deals done. Um, so that on the buyer side is a huge trend. On the seller side, uh, I think you know, there are a lot of people who are still motivated um, to sell, not just because the valuations are strong, but there are just more options for sellers right now. Um, and one, we used to just associate with you know, selling sort of an exit or a succession. Now there are a lot more gradual transitions, um, sell and stay. There are minority sell options that are out there. So, you know, we're just seeing sellers that are getting a little bit more savvy, right? A little larger, as I mentioned before, obviously, um, and exploring all of their options, not just to hit the exit button right, and disappear, Right, but to potentially find a, a buyer or a partner who wants to help them grow and then maybe transition the business over time. And then the last piece is just evaluations. Uh, they're still very, very strong. Uh, not surprising, right? The market's recovered nicely and have hit all-time highs within just the last couple of weeks. So we're seeing deal activity in all-time high, size of the firms are the largest we've ever seen before. And the deal values, in some cases, you know, are the strongest that uh, the industry has ever experienced. In your opinion, these professional buyers that are getting bigger and bigger, is this good for the investor? You know, I do think it, it's good for the investor. And that's an important question, right? Because that doesn't get asked a lot, right? Uh, we get asked a lot about deal value, deal structure, um, and you know, post-closed, you know, can you integrate all these companies? Um, but I think it's an important question because you're starting to really help build organizations that can scale quite a bit, right? So rather than being, you know, if you're a billion dollar wealth manager, you're still a, a small business, right? In many, many ways. You might mm -hmm. only have 15 or 20 people who work for your firm. Now you're able to plug into a platform, right? Whether it's technology, broader operations, a lot of these companies have very strong, robust marketing engines, right? Or you could also plug into their investment management platform and rely on a deeper research team and, and investment organization. So, yeah, I do think in the end, it's better for investors because the advisors get to focus on advice, right? And not just running a, a small business. Um, the, the buyers are the ones who are now saying, we'll take care of the professional management, day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, sort of operations if you need help there. 
and whatever we can do to help you grow and be more efficient, you know, we're here. Right. So I, I do think in the end, it's, it's good for the investor. Gosh, sometimes it sounds like we're just building the new phase of warehouses. <laughs> it does feel like that sometimes. Right. Um, yeah. And in some ways it's actually, you think about it, you know, I've heard a couple of people use the analogy. It's almost like the celebrity chefs, right? Um, you know, we're not necessarily seeing RIAs that are turning into the next, you know, McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's, right? You're seeing firms that are really high quality, really well run, have a really unique value proposition and way of delivering advice. And they're being carefully franchised very much like someone like a Denny Meyer, for instance, right? Um, built himself out of what was at some point just a handful of restaurants into a national brand that, you know, in my opinion, at least, isn't diluted from what it was in, in its very early stages. So um, not necessarily rebuilding the wirehouse, right, but reinventing that sort of concept or the model, right, but with a little bit more selectivity, right? Um, it's probably not a bad way to think about it. Yeah, but if you're, if you're being bought by one of these professional advisors who's in one area and you're kind of way far away, can you actually use that brand to help you? Everybody has a different model, right? So there are some acquirers that would ask you or require you, right? To adapt their, to adopt their, uh, their brand, right? Others would just leave you to you know, run your business the way you always have, at least from a branding or a marketing standpoint. Um, and while you might not necessarily need to tap into you know, the home office, right? Or the mothership, like you would know a wirehouse, you do have the ability to connect with other firms that are under you know, that umbrella, right? So you do have these sort of sister or companion you know, firms where in some cases you know, you're seeing, especially with the retirees, they're moving from, I'm in the tri-state area, so I'll, pick with me, I'll stick with New York, moving from New York to Florida and they need you know, another advisor or some other touch point when they're you know, spending half the year in New York, half the year in Florida, right? In a normal year, I should say. Um, and, and I think that there are you know, ways that you can use these networks, right? To help expand, if you're the advisor, the delivery of your advice or to help expand the services, the relationships and the support, right? That you're giving to your clients. So it, it'll look very different from the wirehouse model. There's no question, right? Because the emphasis isn't on production and revenues so much as it is you know, essentially the service quality of advice, right? And relationships. Um, so, you know, we'll see how it plays out, right? But I think you're not wholly reliant on that home office or the, you know, the, the mothership, if you will, um, to support, to, to be your be all and end all. All right, let's touch on something else that you you mentioned earlier. For those who may not be aware, what does my what does a minority buying mean or a minority buyer? Sure. Uh, so basically, we're looking at firms that are you could even really call them minority investors in some cases, right? Um, because while they're taking a stake in an RIA, um, you know, they're, they're, it's not a controlling stake. Um, so there are definitely firms that you've seen, you know, emigrant, merchant investment, you know, they've been very active over the last you know, year plus, um, and they could be buying under 20% of a firm, right? They could, and that, that may actually become more common. I think it's a nuance that it doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, but if you're acquiring less than 20%, uh, then you don't actually have to go out and get you know, consent from all of your clients, right? If you're an advisor, 
um, for a change in ownership. Um, so you can fly under the radar, right? You're getting some cash if you're taking 19.9% from one of these minority acquirers. You're taking some chips off the table if you're the firm owner. And you're also tapping into some of the other types of resources that I talked about before. You're still in control of your business. You're still running it, right? You're still making all the decisions. And from a governance standpoint, right, you're the decision maker if it's a firm that has you know, a single owner like that. Um, but I, I do think, you know, it's an interesting, if you're thinking about selling your firm, right, it's a, it's, a, it's a big, dramatic and emotional decision. It's an interesting sort of half step forward, right? Um, it's a way to date before you get married. Uh, and it's also a way to not relinquish too much control. Um, before you actually, or if you ever want to explore doing uh, a, a full you know, sort of majority deal with another partner. So just one other thing I would actually add from our deal report, um, there, there were three times the number of minority acquisitions right, um, in 2020 than there were in 2019. And I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. So the, the cash influence or the the, getting the cash as well as dating is, is a huge factor for driving these deals. Anything else? Definitely. And I think you know, it, it's also, in some cases, you're seeing firms that are in the earlier or sort of mid stages of their life cycles, right? So many of the traditional deals that you've seen getting done over time are involving uh, uh, an owner or a group of owners who are looking for a succession solution. Yeah, I, I have clients now who are in their you know 40s, early 50s who don't have to sell, right? Um, but they see some of these options that are out there, and it's really compelling. And they're saying, all right, maybe I will do a minority deal because in a lot of cases, if you own and run a firm, that is your biggest asset, right? In terms of in your personal wealth. Um, so if you've run and built a very successful business, the cash itself is a great way to take some chips off the table, and it's also a great way for you, right, to grow the business. And who knows, you know, 10 years from now, you might want to look at selling again, right? That's the beauty of this business. You can sell your firm twice, right? Um, if you have the opportunity to, right? Um, and I think just a few years out, you'll see even more players in this space who are looking to provide sort of minority uh, investments in RIA firms too. Discovery Data empowers you to trust your decisions and your data. As your strategic go-to-market partner, we improve the impact of your data-driven sales, marketing, and recruiting to increase win rates and accelerate growth. Visit us at discoverydata.com to learn more. What does this um, landscape mean for all advisors and what they should they be thinking about? I, I think in a lot of ways, you kind of have to break it down by size, right? So there are firms under 100 million. I'd say that there there are the firms that are you know, 100 million to say you know, 500 million, and then there's 500 million plus. I think you know, the consolidation means different things for different parts of the business. Um, I think the firms that are 500 million and up, I mean that's where we're seeing obviously quite a bit of consolidation. Um, so I think those firms will have the consolidation will have the biggest impact on on that segment first and foremost. Um, I think those are the firms you know, in terms of size that are you know, getting, that have the strongest valuations. Those are the firms that you know, if you're looking at the professional buyers, they want to acquire most. So there is a ton of competition. Um, and there are also not a lot of firms, right, that are in that size. We tend to think of 
the RIA industry at being you know, 30,000 firms, but really you're somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 4,000 or so if you're you know, counting the number of firms that have over you know, 500 million in assets under management. Um, you know, that 100 million to 500 million might be the next group impacted. There's definitely an interest in acquiring those firms, but it, it's not nearly at the level as the 500 million and billion dollar plus firms. I think those firms are trying to grow quickly, trying to show growth, right? And trying to prove if they're looking, whether it's a minority or they're looking to sell a you know, majority stake in their business, um, that they have really long-term growth potential. And by plugging into maybe a bigger platform or merging with a firm of similar size, they can create sort of exponential growth. Um, so they're the ones who are you know, out on the field improving it, whereas you know, the 500 million and up are more established, right? Um, and I would say are you know, sort of in more, more you know, marketable at the moment. Um, and then the 100 million and below is sort of a different story, right? You tend to have firms that are just solo practitioners. Um, and there are so many of those firms that it would be hard to just summarize and say what the state of the state is for all of them. But there are definitely firms that, in that size range that are looking at ways to either you know, merge or sell their businesses to maybe the $100 million to $500 million firms, right, as another way for th that second category I mentioned to show some accelerated growth rates too. So there is a little bit of a waterfall, right, um, if you will. And it'll impact everybody differently, but the larger firms in the industry are the ones that are most impacted right now. What advice do you have for firms that are entering the scary world besides knowing all the data involved? Sure. I, you know, and, and I would just add that you know, it was 2017 um, when I was part of the deal team that sold investment news from Crane Communications to uh, Bonhill Group, a uh, UK-based publishing company. Um, and I, I call that experience out because I, I think mechanically, I was very prepared to go in, right, and sort of evaluate some of the potential partners that were out there, evaluate the deals. Right? And you, you think you're, you're sort of quantitatively ready, right? And you may very well be, but qualitatively, there are so many things that you have to be prepared for, right? So I would say for anybody who's thinking about this, you know, I needed to get myself in a place mentally where I could envision myself working for different people, potentially operating in a different role, right? Um, and I, I don't think, and this is just a confession, that I personally did enough to really think about what I wanted, right? Aside from just getting the deal done, right? Um, and I think that that's something that in the year that I've been at Echelon, I have seen a number of firm owners, right? The sellers, um, sort of say they've thought about, but not really done that deep sort of soul searching and sort of landing on what, aside from the professional goals, right, for the firm, what are the personal goals, right, for you as an individual? Where do you see yourself? What do you want to be doing, right? And what will make you happy, right? So um, I think that's really the, the biggest challenge in a, in a lot of ways is just, you know, sort of defining what success looks like for you, for your employees, and for your clients. Um, and then the last piece I would just add there, there are so many firms that are just getting you know, calls right now from whether they're professional buyers or you know, prospective buyers. There are a lot of first-time buyers who would really like to do an acquisition to get their work their way into the RIA industry here. Um, and there are a lot of unsolicited offers that you know, advisors are, are receiving and have been receiving for some time. Uh, I, I would say, you know, this sounds self-serving, but you really do need to talk to whether it's an investment banker or some other you know, firm that has context, 
right? Um, have some visibility into what's actually happening in the M&A landscape. And I, and I, I don't think we're going to get every deal that's out there, right? Um, so it doesn't have to be us, but I think it, there's really a value, even though you think you can do it independently, in tapping third parties who know what they're doing to not only make sure you get the best price, right, when you sell your business, right, but that you're finding the right fit, got the right terms, and that all of the you know, constituents, you know, you, your employees, your clients, everybody is going to be in a better place, right? When the deal actually closes. Um, so it's a lot to think about, but those are sort of the two different lanes, right? That I would encourage people to really think in, right? Am I emotionally sort of psychologically ready for this? And then do I have you know, the acumen, right? Um, the perspective to really go into this because it's a full-time job, right? Um, and make sure that I'm finding the right partner. You know, I knew you from your, um, investment news days. And did that experience of going through that transaction lead you and get your interest into moving here? Because you could have done a lot of different things. A hundred percent. And that was, you know, for me, I was always interested in you know, building teams and bringing people together. Um, but going through that process was something that I learned more from, right. Than any other, I hate to call it a project because it sort of minimizes, you know, what we were doing. Um, but I learned more from that experience than anything else. Um, and through that, you know, that's where I've known Dan Sievers, the founder and CEO of Echelon for quite some time. Um, it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to sync up, get a lot closer to helping people understand you know, the deal process and not just, right, how do we get the right the value structure, right? How do we make sure that, you know, we're, we're getting the absolute best you know, combination of firms here, but really how do you as a firm owner get the best result, the best outcome, right? For you, your employees and your clients. Um, so, you know, for me, it's been a great transition so far. I feel pretty fortunate. It's been an interesting, it was an interesting year to try a career change, right? But based on some of the activity that we saw in 2020 and we're looking at for 2021, uh, I wouldn't change a thing. Lastly, let's get your crystal ball out. What's going to, what's going to happen this year in your area? So without a major event, <laughs> I would say, you know, we would absolutely expect to see more M&A activity um, and more large firms involved in uh, deals in 2021. Um, I would be really surprised if it wasn't another record year of M&A activity in the RIA industry. Um, I, I do think, you know, you'll see more, private equity money, which we've been seeing for quite some time, right? Um, I also think you'll see more convergence between wealth management and retirement. You saw some of that last year, and you're even seeing some of it in the beginning of this year, just the first couple of business days of 2021. There have already been some very, very large deals. Um, you know, today was the Aqualine Sage deal, um, and yet yesterday Hightower announced its largest deal to date. So you know, people may have you know, taken a little bit of a breath <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. over the holidays, but you know, everybody got back to work all at once here. So I don't see activity. I don't see the sophistication and I don't see you know, the size of the deals you know, decreasing anytime soon. That's great. Mark, it's been quite a pleasure. Thank you. No, Doug, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. And we'll have to do a check back in 12 months to make sure that I'm absolutely wrong. Right. Cause everybody, <laughs> everybody's right until you call them out and put them on the spot. We will do a check back. 
for everybody at Discovery Data and the Data Possible podcast team, we thank you all for joining us. Take care. The Data Possible podcast is brought to you by Discovery Data. For more information about Discovery Data, please visit discoverydata.com.